0: This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Good morning,
1: everyone. Um, I'm Terry Kelly. I'm the director of the Homeland Security Research Division here at RAND. On behalf of my colleagues, welcome to RAND. Over the last nine months, the Transportation Security Administration has implemented new security standards for flights to the U.S. and in international airports with connections to the U.S., working with allies and in industry. In doing this, TSA is leading the global effort to raise standards for aviation security and also to raise the bar for security domestically here within the United States. It is my honor to introduce David Pakoski, who will give us an overview of these efforts. Administrator Pukowski became the seventh TSA administrator in August. He leads a workforce of approximately 60,000 employees, uh, including the Federal Air Marshal Service, and is responsible for security uh, operations in nearly 450 airports across the nation. Before joining TSA, Administrator Pakoski was an executive in the government services industry, where he led teams that provided counterterrorism, security, intelligence, and innovation support services to government agencies. Most notably, as a vice admiral in the Coast Guard, he was the 26th vice commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, culminating a 33-year career in uniform. Now, please join me in welcoming Administrator Pekoski, who will talk about TSA's strategy and approach to operations on behalf of evolving threats. After his remarks, uh, ran security and terrorism expert Brian Jenkins will Join Administrator Prokoski for a conversation, and then we'll follow that with Q&A.
2: Well, thank you, Terry, for the introduction. And it's great to be here in Santa Monica, California, uh, as we approach December on the East Coast. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to this opportunity to have a dialogue with you about the Transportation Security Administration. And as I do that, I want to tell a a tale of two stories today. And the first, I think, will be very familiar to you. And the second one may not be. Uh, In fact, I'm pretty sure it will not be. But let's just say we take a notional passenger and call this passenger John. Uh, And John is all set to fly from Denver to LAX, uh, to Denver from LAX for a work conference. The night before his flight, John sits down with his son to watch their favorite series on their favorite streaming service. Just as the show starts, John remembers that he needs to check in and get his boarding pass. So he pauses the show and checks in, obtaining his digital boarding pass on the phone. When John arrives at the airport the next morning... As much as two hours early, he checks his bag and heads towards security. He's been planning to get TSA pre-checked for a few months, but hasn't gotten to it yet. So he enters the standard line, presents his digital boarding pass and ID to the transportation security officer, and starts divesting his personal items. Laptop in a separate bin, belt off, shoes off, jacket off, and everything out of his pockets. Then he waits to put those items in the x-ray belt. And he makes it through the AIT machine, which is the machine that you go through that checks on-body items and collects his things and puts himself together. And he heads for the newsstand for a magazine and a a bottle of water. All told, his time in security took about 20 minutes. You are familiar with this story. And, well, hopefully most of you have TSA pre-check, so yours is a slightly different experience. But millions of passengers across the country are doing this as I speak. Millions did it over the Thanksgiving holiday and millions more will do it over the upcoming holiday travel period. I would be remiss if I did not pause to give a shout out to the transportation security officers and our partners for the great job they did over the Thanksgiving holiday. Between the Friday before Thanksgiving and Monday, we screened 26.2 million passengers. And on Sunday alone, over 2.6 million travelers came through checkpoints around the country, making it the fifth busiest day in TSA's history. 98% of those passengers waited less than 20 minutes in line and 99.85% waited less than 30 minutes in line with no significant security incidents. And I think this is is pretty impressive. And if you were in a TSA pre-check line, your wait time would likely be half of that, generally between 5 and 10 minutes, perhaps the shortest wait of your entire journey from curb to gate. I'm impressed not just because of the sheer volume of passengers screened, but also because we accomplished it with enhanced security in place and in mind. You see, effectiveness is my top focus. Uh, I'm the administrator of the Transportation Security Administration. Security is our middle name. I truly believe our system today is effective, but understand that it's not perfect. That is why we are working hard every day to innovate in big and small ways, to find processes and technologies that improve the effectiveness of our security and improve the passenger experience. Now, let me tell you about the vision of John's journey at some point in the future. John may still need to check in with his airline, but he doesn't need a boarding pass to gain access to airport security. John is a trusted traveler, so there isn't much of a line. He doesn't have to divest at all. He simply scans his driver's license or passport, or perhaps he authenticates his identity using biometrics and walks through a gate. He is pleasantly surprised to see that there is no traditional checkpoint between him and his favorite spot for airport coffee. Just a low, inconspicuous wall he assumes is a scanner. No line, no boarding pass, no divesting, no stopping. John places his carry-on bags on a belt, no need to remove electronics, liquids, or food, and his items are quickly screened by x-ray. As John walks through on his way to pick up his carry-on bags, he sees that the standard lanes have been reimagined as well. There are five passengers placing their items in bins on a conveyor belt at the same time and they don't seem rushed, and it looks like people in bags are moving through much more quickly than he remembers. The technology to realize this vision is within reach, but we need your help to make the vision a reality and to also envision what happens in the generation after this next generation for transportation security. To most passengers like John, transportation security is synonymous with the TSA checkpoint, but what he sees is only a part of a larger security system. Let's go back for a moment to the night John booked his ticket. The moment he hit the confirm button to purchase the ticket, his name was compared against a list of known or suspected terrorists. So when John arrives at the airport, we already have confidence that he poses a low threat. John proceeds through the checkpoint where a combination of technology and human capital work in tandem as a system to ensure he does not bring anything into the secure side of the airport or onto the plane that could harm others. He notices the canine team in front of the checkpoint, an important piece of the explosives threat detection system. He notices our officers, of course, but may not know that they are trained to identify suspicious behavior, another important part of the system. Once on board the flight, there are pieces he does not notice. John doesn't know that there is a Federal Air Marshal on board protecting the plane from potential attackers, or that the pilot and flight deck crew may be trained by TSA to protect the flight deck from attack. Zooming out a bit, it's impossible for John to see the work TSA and his partners have done to improve the baseline of global aviation security, with additional security measures at last point of departure airports for flights destined to the United States. He has no idea how our efforts to improve security in a distant country are making him more secure on his two-hour flight from Los Angeles to Denver. And he also doesn't see the work TSA has done alongside our partners to make his transfer to and ride on the new light rail system in town us to be safe and secure. And that's perfectly fine with me. In fact, TSA's job is to do everything we can to ensure John never has to think about our security efforts behind the scenes. To meet the security challenges of today and anticipate the demands of tomorrow, to ensure that John can focus on the destination of his next trip and trust that we have ensured its security, we are constantly reimagining and innovating the transportation security system. Remember that TSA was started as an entrepreneurial enterprise. We were given significant flexibilities to remain agile in the face of an extraordinary and dynamic threat. The cornerstone of our organization reads in part, quote, Forged on the anvil of cruel necessity and blood shed innocently, the TSA was built urgently in time of war to preserve peace. This vital agency was made not of steel and stone, but of innovation, quiet patriotism, steady virtue, and the firm resolve of a nation that would not yield to terror, unquote. Unfortunately, over the past 16 years as TSA has evolved, it has also become more and more constrained and lost some of that entrepreneurial edge envisioned immediately after 9-11. Our ability to move swiftly and stay at the forefront of technology has been challenged. Despite our constraints, we are still expected to take the the bold risks to stay ahead of tomorrow's threats. This is why public-private partnerships are so important to our continued success. Only by working together by combining our intellectual capital and innovative ideas with our technological capabilities, get ahead of tomorrow's threats, and provide the level of security and convenience the public expects. Our partnerships with industry are the keys to unlocking the innovation and capabilities TSA needs to excel at our mission today and into the future. These partnerships will help bring forth new technology and new ways of approaching training, processes, and leadership. And we enthusiastically welcome industry partnership in addressing these challenges. So I really thank you for inviting me to speak with you today, and I'm looking forward to opening up this discussion. It is in TSA's best interest to think boldly and to take action. Evoke that entrepreneurial spirit by embracing calculated risk-taking to ensure security effectiveness. Join me in embracing the big ideas that will move us forward to meet the threats now and into the future. We cannot waste energy fighting the speed of government. We must redefine what that speed is. Thank you, Administrator Pekoski. I'd now like to invite Brian
1: Michael Jenkins to join you on the stage. Brian needs no introduction to many of you, but for those new to RAND, he is a senior advisor to the president of RAND and director of the Mineta Transportation Institute's Transportation Security Center. In 1972, Brian initiated RAND's research in terrorism. On more than one occasion in the 1980s and 1990s, Brian suggested that terrorists could hijack an airplane and crash it into a city or a skyscraper. On at least one occasion, he said that during testimony in front of the U.S. Senate. Among several other notable accomplishments, he also served as a member of the White House Commission on Aviation Safety and Security from 1996 to 1997, and as advisor to the National Commission on Terrorism in 2000. Brian is an author of many publications on terrorism and aviation security, uh, notably Aviation Security. After four decades, it's time for a fundamental review, and most recently, The Origins of America's Jihadist. So let me welcome Brian.
3: Thank you very much. A number of questions occurred to me as I was thinking about uh, you being here this morning, and of course we 've all seen recently in the in the press concerns about electronic devices being. Mm-hmm. Bombs being hidden, electronic devices, about new measures being put into place for that. Before that, it was bombs concealed in underwear. Before that, it was liquid explosives that one of your predecessors, Kip Hawley, who's with mm-hmm. us this morning, had to make dramatic changes to deal with in a matter of hours. That was in 2006. Before that, bombs in shoes going all the way back to the hijackings and initial bombings in the late 60s and, and, and 70s. The question is that. that puzzles me why do terrorists continue to be obsessed with attacking airlines we know they normally can slide off to easier targets but they have declared
2: aviation a battleground and they persist they do and, and in fact they, <coughs> they continue to persist um, uh, one of the points that I think is important to make is that aviation does remain the prime terrorist target for organizations that want to do harm to the United States and I think uh, the focus on aviation is due in, in part to uh, trying to repeat, if you will, the 9-11 scenario. Uh, I think there's, there's some desire on, on the part of organizations to show that they can still do that. And additionally, uh, it's, it's also, I think, viewed by them as an opportunity to inflict serious uh, economic harm on the United States economy. Whenever there is a terrorist attack like that and we, we're working very hard to become more and more resilient, But they observed right after 9-11 that basically the United States came to a halt for a a bit of time as we recovered from those attacks. So I think in their minds there's this notion that attacking aviation, one, gets significant event. It allows for a repeat of what they would view as past success and uh, and also allows them to inflict, uh, in their view, long-term harm on the United States economy. You know,
3: it, it, it seems from, again, looking at these, these recent threats and recent events, that U.S.-bound flights, rather than flights originating in the U.S., appear to be the most vulnerable right now to to terrorist attack. Your jurisdiction clearly extends to uh, flights originating in the United States and, and U.S.-bound ones. But when you're dealing with those foreign-based flights coming into the United States, obviously, Uh, TSA has more limited jurisdiction Mm -hmm. in, in that territory. So how do you address the gap in the difference between your ability to
2: deal with domestic carriers and to deal with foreign governments and foreign carriers? Well, fortunately, um, uh, the Aviation and Transportation Security Act of 2001, which was enacted by Congress and signed by President Bush in November of 2001, so right after the 9-11 attacks, gives TSA significant authority to regulate airline traffic into the United States as well. Um, Part of our effort to raise the global bar in aviation security was focused on the last points of departure airports to the United States. And we put a number of measures in place with foreign carriers and U.S. carriers that would, in our view, raise raise the level of security overall. And so we've gone through, we're phasing in this approach. We, uh, we have the first phase that we put in place over the course of the summer, and that's fully implemented. And I would say that the, the response on the part of the Uh, Airlines and the airports uh, that were affected and the countries that were affected has been uh, really tremendous because I think there's a global desire to increase aviation security overall. Uh, And then secondly, we have another series of measures that are being implemented as I speak. And then we're working very closely with our international partners through international organizations like ICAO and IATA and also through uh, airline organizations, airport organizations, to say, okay, what is that next step? What is the next step beyond the first two that we've put in place? And as I look at that, I'm also looking to make sure that as we put that next step in place that we have parallel systems going in place in the United States to increase our domestic uh, level of security. And so our focus has been on those last points of departure airports. There are a number of them. There are 280 of them around the world, and it's a significant effort on our part to inspect and ensure that the measures that we require are, in fact, actually implemented. But so far, that's been a very, very good global effort, and I really appreciate the partnership of the airlines in, in, in helping us do that. And there's another aspect of this as well, and that involves the carriage of cargo uh, on board cargo-only aircraft uh, destined to the United States. We're also looking at that issue.
3: Right. You know, uh, we, we saw it with the original threat to, to prohibit flights coming mm-hmm. from certain countries, so we know what the sticks are. But but are there also an array of incentives that we can offer? Can we even go into providing assistance to some countries that may not have the resources mm-hmm. in the form of, of, right. of training or helping them purchase yes. the right equipment? And-
2: yes, and in fact, one of the ICAO tenants, uh, International uh, Civil Aviation Organization, uh, one of their tenants is that uh, no country is left behind in uh, increasing Uh, aviation safety and security. Uh, And so there's an effort, and we participate in it robustly, to help other countries also raise uh, their aviation security levels. Uh, In addition, as we have equipment that we no longer need uh, in the United States that might be replaced with the next generation of equipment to provide that to some countries who who may not be able to purchase their own. So there's a very significant effort, and and I have a a good number of of TSA personnel who are signed overseas, and they're assigned overseas to be liaisons uh, in countries at the American embassies and also to be liaisons with the industry uh, internationally. So, we, you know, we want to keep uh, our own uh, direct sense of what, what other partners need and and, and how things are going in raising that bar overall. You know, almost
3: every one of your, your predecessors have had to deal with the issue of leaked test results mm-hmm. of inspections at airports. In fact, there are just some recent headlines, you know, an 80% failure rate. I think Minneapolis... Uh, Achieved a 95 percent failure rate, and that echoed uh, some of the earlier test results in 2015. That, that problem, and and this appears to be a persistent problem. I'm not going to ask you mm-hmm. to comment on 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 the details of of, of the leak reports. And personally, you know, I have some reservations about the degree to which some of these tests reflect the reality of aviation security. I don't think we want to make that, that leap. But I will ask, given the, the high volume of, of passengers, and, and you mentioned these extraordinary volumes in, in the Thanksgiving weekend, and the pressures on the screeners, mm-hmm. are, are we approaching the limits of human performance here, or are, have we really corralled the human portion of this too much with SOPs and technology? How do you handle
2: that yeah. issue? Well, um, any covert testing uh, I find to be very valuable. Um, So the uh, Department of Homeland Security Inspector General conducts covert testing on a regular basis. We conduct our own covert tests. In fact, uh, TSA conducts roughly 40,000 covert tests every year. The purpose of the covert testing is to test the system and see where there might be vulnerabilities in the system. I think the important part with that is once you identify the vulnerabilities, addressing them quickly and addressing them systematically uh, one of the things that, as the administrator, and I know Administrator Hawley would, would agree with this, is uh, you know, we want to see a steady progression of of effectiveness in in the checkpoints and learn from the lessons that we've identified uh, in the past. And so we have systems in place uh, to ensure that we do that. But as I look at the, the issue of covert test results, there are kind of three ways that you can approach uh, covert test results in terms of how do you – move that needle to increase security effectiveness over time. Uh, One of the things you can do is you can improve training for your workforce, uh, which we have done. And I personally have participated in some of that training, and I think it's really excellent. And we're transitioning from some uh, computer-based training into instructor-led training where, you know, questions can be asked and, and it's more direct with our individual transportation security officers. So you can, you can focus on training. Then you can focus also on procedures. We have very detailed procedures that our transportation security officers follow at checkpoints throughout the country. And as as we look at the evolving threat, we evolve our, our procedures to meet what that threat is. And, and importantly, as we look at an evolving threat, we kind of try to figure out, okay, where's that threat going to be in a year or two how do we adjust our procedures now to stay ahead of that uh, into the future? Uh, one of the things that the passengers saw over the Thanksgiving holiday period is a change in procedure that was a result of a threat, um, and that was the um, the process where in the standard lanes, passengers are asked to take more out of their uh, carry-on bags for additional screening, and what that does is it allows the uh, transportation security officer who is working the x-ray machine to see a much, un- much more uncluttered image uh, going through, and it makes them... More effective at their job, and in fact, at the once this is fully implemented, and, and passengers and our screeners get fully used to it, uh, we think that will actually save some time at the checkpoint because it does declutter the bags and, and should make throughput a little bit faster. But the third place, you know, you, you're looking at training, uh, looking at changing procedures. And you can also look at technology, and, and uh, from my perspective, that is the area where I want to focus the most on because I think that's where. We can improve security effectiveness the most, and in particular is the the x-ray machine uh, at the checkpoint. Current x-ray machine can see an image in a two-dimensional way only. It cannot see it in three dimensions. The equipment that we are looking to purchase to populate across our system can see images three-dimensionally. And as I mentioned in my remarks, this equipment has improved detectability, so it can detect explosives and prohibited items across a broader range of threats that we're looking for. And importantly, with respect to explosives in particular, it can look at explosive weights that are significantly below what we can see today. And so when this equipment gets in place, it really gives the transportation security officers the tools they need to do the job. And and I I would also say, and it's it's really, I I think, important for our security environment overall, is is I've been to as many airports as I could possibly get to in my three-plus months as administrator. And the reason I did that is I really wanted to get out to the front line and see what the frontline transportation security officers were, were dealing with. And, and my read of all those visits and my interactions with our transportation security officers uh, allows me to conclude that they, they really do an excellent job. This is a difficult job. They do an excellent job. To me, it's, it's my job as their administrator to make sure that they do get the right training, that they do have procedures that are effective, and that we do procure equipment that gives them the tools to do the job uh, as best they can. And so I would, you know, you know, from my perspective, I said it in my remarks and I'll say it again, is that I'm very proud of the work that the transportation security officers do. And and I view it as my personal responsibility to give them additional tools to continue to do a better job in uh, a very critical and very important job that they have. Uh, the The other part of, of this is that the checkpoint is just one element of our overall security system. There's a lot of work that's done before a passenger even arrives at the airport uh, because we try to assess risk by passenger. and um, And that's important, and, and we're continuing to focus our effort there so that if we... Uh, identify a passenger that presents a greater risk to us, we focus more effort on that passenger. To me, that's the essence of, of managing risk, is to put your resources to where you think the greatest risk is. And as I mentioned, you know, once a passenger gets on board an aircraft, um, there's a likelihood that there will be either a Federal Air Marshal, uh, um, a team of Federal Air Marshals on board, uh, or a, a team that's, that's trained by us on the flight deck to be able to uh, preserve the safety and security uh, of that aircraft. So you know, an awful lot of work that's been done, the, the canines that are operated by local law enforcement in advance of going through the checkpoint and then the TSA canines that work the checkpoints also provide an element of security. So when you look at covert testing results, know that those covert testing results are done with the purpose of, of improving our system and that they do focus on an element of the system, not, not the whole system. And what I look at, and I think what we need to continue to look at in security overall, is what is the overall security system there? And are we you know, are we are we applying the uh, the right resources to the highest risk let, let me follow that up in terms of allocating resources among
3: risks, mm-hmm. which of course makes makes sense. you know twenty years ago, the White House Commission fought hard mm-hmm. uh, for the introduction of the computer assisted passenger pre screening system, mm-hmm. which was essentially a computer algorithm that would look at the information available about every passenger not, not, Nothing secret uh, or, or anything, but just look at what was on there, how the reservation was made, how it was paid for, and so on, and fought to get that that introduced against uh, resistance, some resistance by civil libertarians mm-hmm. and, and some resistance from the airlines because mm-hmm. it, was, it was an added inconvenience and they were in charge of security. It was never really implemented fully the way it was designed, although on the morning of 9/11 caps did identify nine of the 19, nine of the 19 hijackers. Caps has been largely discarded in favor of looking at what's in our intelligence holdings. Is caps essentially dead or is there a future for something like caps in the future aviation security model that you
2: alluded to in your remarks? Well, I think it's important that uh, we do everything we can to assess risk before a passenger even arrives at the airport. And the uh, Aviation and Transportation Security Act does give the TSA administrator some authority to um, place uh, passengers uh, in a category that will require additional screening based on on some risk scenarios. And so we do have authority there, but that authority is very carefully uh, managed and uh, and reviewed uh, personally by me on occasion. And, And we also have a system wherein if somebody finds themselves in a selectee category, that they can ask for redress for that decision. And we worked to, to rapidly hear their, uh, their case for redress and make a judgment on it. But I think you know, looking at information that's available to us and doing it in a very responsible way uh, is an important element of security into the future. And, and what I envision over the course of time is that you know, right now we, we basically treat passengers in three categories. There's, there's the pre-check category, Uh, which is the trusted traveler category. It also applies to Global Entry, uh, Nexus, and Sentry, managed by Customs and Border Protection. So there's your trusted traveler population. Then you have the standard traveler population. And then you have the the population of selectees, which would go against the the authorities that we already have to pre-identify individuals based on on good, reliable information for additional screening. But I would submit that that really there's perhaps more than three categories of, of passenger risk uh, and so going forward, I want to look at how, how can we more carefully identify passenger risk and then apply the screening resources and screening effort that we have to the areas that are of the greatest risk. I, I would submit to you that that uh, you know, well over 90 percent of the passengers that travel present minimal risk uh, in the system. And, and so I, you know, I, my vision is to get to a point where we can apply resources to that less than 10 percent, more resources to that less than 10 percent, that we really do have concerns of. But having said that, for passengers that we have concerns with, uh, you know, I think we need to resolve and address those concerns relatively quickly because you can't stay on a concern list for, for a very long time without the, without the means to, uh, to challenge that determination uh, and have it reviewed.
3: Right. Um, you know, back to the performance of the screeners, and I think the screeners do a hell of a job. I mean, it's, it's, it's an extraordinarily difficult uh, a, a job that they have. You mentioned training. One issue of training, of course, that affects training is turnover. Mm-hmm. Uh, turnover rates in, in, in pre-TS days, of course, were horrendous. They were right. three 400%. So basically, you had new people on a job every 90 days. Mm-hmm. How is retention working in terms of turnover today and... and how are you addressing that?
2: Yeah, retention is, is, is a concern of mine. And, you know, I think retention is directly related to pay and to job satisfaction. And, uh, you know, I pay very close attention. We do surveys every year, standard surveys of the entire uh, TSA workforce. that works across government, in fact. It's called the uh, Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. And I look very carefully at all those results. In fact, uh, whenever I visit an airport, I review the, the, those survey results in advance so I can see what the levels of job satisfaction at an airport are. And it it gets you down to some level of detail so you can really look at some of the dissatisfiers on the part of our employees. And so, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is to work very hard to see if we can't address those dissatisfiers to improve job satisfaction because, in my view, an employee who uh, is more satisfied with their job is going to do a better job. They're going to turn over less frequently, which basically raises the level of expertise at a checkpoint or anywhere else in the system that they're assigned Uh, And additionally, it reduces the cost of the agency to have to recruit and retrain uh, replacement individuals. But the other part of this is that um, uh, we have to recognize, too, that uh, for some federal jobs, and I think the Transportation Security Officer is is in that category, this is an entry-level job into the federal workforce. So we should anticipate that some people that, that join TSA are going to eventually move over to Customs and Border Protection, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or other agencies Candidly, I think that's good. I mean, you know, if we provide an entry-level experience into government and, and somebody likes service in the government, they like the impact that they can have on the safety and well-being of the American public, then we should welcome the fact that they, they look to further their career uh, perhaps at other agencies. We're also looking at how, how can we, for our entry-level workforce, paint for them a career path for their first, let's say, two to ten years as a transportation security officer, and right now we we don't have that in place, but we're very close to publishing that. And, and basically, what that will show is if you sign up and join TSA, this these are the promotion points that if you perform well and you conduct uh, and you complete the training that we require, these are the promotion points that you can expect over the course of a career as a transportation security officer. And the other important uh, part about that is is that to be qualified for certain promotion points, this is training that you you need to receive but we need to provide it to you and, and to have a combination of both on-site at the airport training and resident training where we would, we would send a, a transportation security officer off to another site uh, to get trained in a more formal way. Our experience with that off-site training has been very good. We established a, a TSA academy about a year and a half ago that basically takes uh, new entrants into TSA within their first, let's say, six to eight months of service in TSA. They go off for a two-week training program at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. Um, Our testing of those uh, transportation security officers, once they complete that training, shows that they do perform at a higher level than than individuals who did not go through that training. And so we're looking to basically take that model, and as you you progress as a transportation security officer, so you're a a transportation security officer, you, you become a lead, then a supervisor, then a manager, that we provide some of those resident training opportunities for you to help you develop your leadership skills, uh, your management skills, and also your skills in working, trans, uh, you know, the the, um, the checkpoint equipment. Let, let
3: me ask a question, that that combines the issue of, of training and, and, mm-hmm. and performance with a somewhat more stable, a, a, it's definitely a more stable uh, workforce, and some of these people have gained a considerable amount of experience on a job. and. Mm-hmm. And when we look at these test results, without going into detail of the test results, airport by airport, are, are there some places where people persistently score higher and some where there's a persistent problem? Can we learn from what they're doing right at the places that persistently perform higher? In other words, they're, they're, even although everyone is following an, an SOP, mm-hmm. some people have figured out how to do it more effectively, right. consistently. And do we have a way of capturing, in a sense, those lessons learned and best practices?
2: Yeah, in fact, we do, and that's a great question. Uh, one of the things that we do is when we look at the results across the entire enterprise, and so we look at 450 airports and, and see which airports might be um, uh, really performing well um, on, on survey results, and then we kind of break it down by airport size, too, because that does have an impact. We, we visit those airports that perform very, very well and try to learn, hey, what, what, what are you doing here that's been so successful? And then we take those lessons, and we, we basically populate them out to the rest of, of, of the airports and say, hey, here are some things that, that uh, airports that scored high uh, traditionally do. We also visit airports that, that might be struggling with some of their job satisfaction results because our, you know, our job is to, is to help everybody get up to a level where, where job satisfaction is higher than what it is today. And you know, we want to take certainly the best practices that are out there, but not just collect them and then just push them out as as documents, but actually have field visits, and and field visits to the extent that, hey, we're here to help and we're here to, to see what we can do to understand why you might be challenged in certain categories and how we can do better.
3: You know, whenever there are these test uh, results headlines, there are critics of TSA who jump on these results as evidence that the government's failure, despite spending mm-hmm. $5, 6000000000 billion a year, and argued that we should should privatize airline security. And some airports, the largest one out here, San Francisco, mm-hmm. do employ private screeners. Mm-hmm. In, in your view, what are the advantages and disadvantages, the pros and cons of, of privatization? Are private screeners... A one solution going forward, or is this going to risk taking us back to the old days uh, of of pre-9-11?
2: Well, I think private screeners are one way going forward. We have roughly 24 airports around the country that have private screeners, but those private screeners are following uh, TSA standard operating procedures, and there's a federal security director, a TSA employee and staff, at each one of those airports, uh, and, and, and some TSA inspectors that make sure that, that the standard operating procedures are being followed. And so from my perspective, my main concern is, is security effective? And if security is effective, I'm willing to look at any model that might be out there that, that could provide us uh, other ways to look at this situation. Uh, you know, around the world... Other countries have different models that they use for TSA screening. We look at those on a regular basis as well. But for me, the, the, the bottom line is, what's the most effective way to provide um, security screening? Uh, the other thing that, that I think it's important to, to keep in mind is, you know, I, and I've seen some of those uh, reports that say, well, you know, we're spending – uh, billions and billions of dollars, and we're getting nothing in return for it, essentially. And why don't we privatize this? I, I would have a couple of comments. One is, we've been very successful. Well, let's not forget that. Uh, there's not been an attack on an aircraft in the United States since 9-11. Uh, that just doesn't happen by accident. So, so there's been a good degree of success uh, with the system. And, and I think the, 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 uh, an indicator of a healthy system is one that can look at where it needs to improve, be forthright about it, and get about the business of making it even stronger over the course of time. Um, And so I think our system is effective, and there is a cost. If you privatize, that doesn't mean the cost goes away. There's, There's still a cost to provide security, and so I think we just need to be mindful of that as well. Well,
3: I think I mean you, I think you can make the argument about effectiveness both in the U.S. and and even more generally in mm-hmm. terms of of the United States and European mm-hmm. countries. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's difficult to measure empirically the effectiveness of any physical security system. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, terrorism is a rare enough instance. Mm-hmm. It's not like shoplifting that we mm-hmm. can say deploy cameras and immediately see results in mm-hmm. terms of less inventory shrinkage. But if we look over a period of time, clearly the number of hijackings uh, has declined mm-hmm. dramatically. The, uh, the number of attempted uh, bombings have declined. Mm-hmm. And in terms of hijackings, there have been eight hijackings worldwide uh, since nine eleven. not in the United States. These have taken place for the most part in in what used to be called the developing countries of the mm-hmm. world, or they've been carried out, five of those were carried out by uh, by mentally disturbed individuals mm-hmm. who can't easily be disturbed, and they had no devices that they smuggled through. They mm-hmm. claimed to have things or had mm-hmm. hoax devices or, or so on, and, and that clearly is a, a, a record of success. Is that principally the argument, that we look at our success rate by in a sense, deterrence, since we, we really don't catch would-be hijackers in a net
2: like flies. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly deterrence is a, is a big part of, of, of any security system. In fact, the uh, the canine teams uh, we deploy have a significant deterrent effect by themselves and, and a significant effect... Uh, to be able to detect uh, explosive vapors as they're as they're sweeping a line of passengers, uh, but I I do think that you need to look at measures of effectiveness uh, along the way. I mean, you just and and, uh, and that's that's a hard art um, to to get right. Uh, you know, I had as was mentioned when I was introduced, I had a career in the Coast Guard that has a significant prevention mission, and how do you measure the effect of of something not happening? How, right. how do you know something right. that was going to happen? Didn't happen, and and so what you do is you put surrogate measures in place that can help you get at that conclusion legitimately. But not, but you can't be lulled into uh, a sense of comfort that just because something hasn't happened, that you've got the most effective system in place. And and that is why you know I talk about, about layers of security because as you mentioned, you know sometimes an individual is not going to manifest that they are going to take an adverse action in an airport in a public area of an airport or uh, board an aircraft. Uh, in advance. You may, you may not see it in advance. And so what do you have to have in place that should it happen that you have something there to be able to thwart that that attack or that attempt? And that's why I think these layers are so important going forward.
3: You, you mentioned attacks at, at airports. One of the questions that I frequently get when there's a shooting like the one mm-hmm. in the Fort Lauderdale airport mm-hmm. or here at Los right. Angeles airport is shouldn't we extend the, the security perimeter to, to the airport? And I try to point out that One has to do with keeping weapons and and, and bad guys off of planes. Mm -hmm. One has to do with a public space in in, in the airport. But nonetheless, um, there there appears to be continued pressure Mm -hmm. on TSA to somehow assume greater responsibilities for the check-in areas
2: and and, and baggage claim areas Mm -hmm. of the airports. How do you...
3: How do you respond to that? Yeah, we call
2: those the the public areas of the airport. And and so we've carried out a series of public area security summits uh, with airports, and we're going to do one in Washington, D.C., with our mass transit partners because they have the very same issue. And and that is how do you provide uh, security and then coordination in the event of an an incident amongst all of the agencies that work in in an airport public area. And so we've we've got some very good lessons learned from those summits that we have already in place. And I think this is just something that we, we need to keep... Being mindful of, uh, and it goes back to, uh, you know, as I look at the, the the security environment of the future at airports, to the extent that we can actually eliminate lines, uh, because if you have a line of people that are waiting to go through security, that represents in and of itself a vulnerability. So, to the extent that we can we can reduce that vulnerability, I think that also improves the public area um, security. There, uh, we also um, provide significant support to uh, local law enforcement canine teams. So uh, m- many of those canines. Roughly six hundred and seventy across the country are, are purchased by TSA and then provided to local law enforcement along with the training because they're, you know they're out there p- patrolling the public areas and providing that very significant presence uh, but public area security uh, is a significant concern of ours and it and 's it's, it's basically as I view it as, as the transportation security administration you know we're, we have responsibility for the overall all network and, and that responsibility is shared with our partners uh, and we have we 've had great Uh, partnerships with uh, local law enforcement uh, in in providing for public area security.
3: I'm going to open it up to the audience. Questions from the audience.
4: My question first, it has to do with biosecurity. I was wondering what steps you guys were doing to prevent infectious diseases or viruses, people with them, from getting on board a plane, whether it be in the United States or from an outside country. And if you had any steps in place to prevent a spread in that case or like so I was just wondering
2: Yes, in, in, in that regard we work with um, both local health officials and, and federal health officials to determine where there might be risk and, and coordinate that effort uh, very closely. I mean I think one of our, one of our hallmarks of an agency is uh, that we coordinate especially well with our partners and, and share information. Uh, and because we do provide you know a, a funnel, if you will, for passengers, um, uh, I think that partnership is particularly important on, on bio.
0: Yes, good morning. Uh, I'm Morris Williamson. I'm the Consul General to the United States from New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And it's to do with uh, our Air New Zealand services through Los Angeles that I'd love to be able to get a chance to talk to you on because mm-hmm. we are one of the only carriers that run a through service. We fly from London into Los Angeles and then carry on to New Zealand. Right yet our passengers are all made to get off the plane, Mm -hmm. go through customs and border protection out into the main area, then come back through TSA and then right back through the process in order to get back on the very plane that they'd been cleared for both when they were leaving New Zealand to go to London or leaving London to go to New Zealand. If we could find a way of those passengers who had been cleaned at either end and we know that you support... Uh, both the New Zealand systems, because you've been down and checked them, and the London-based systems, Mm -hmm. if we could put those people through a a doorway somehow and back into the terminal Mm -hmm. and not have the nearly two hours. Because in New Zealand now, you'll get people calling the airline saying, I want to go to London, I'll go through Dubai, I'll go through (laughs) Singapore, I'll go through Hong Kong, but I will not go through Los Angeles. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, I think one of the things that um, that we need to work on globally is how do we harmonise standards? across the system. Uh, And to the extent we can harmonize standards, it begins to address that issue. Uh, I was over in Brussels uh, just recently to talk about that with my European Commission counterpart, is is how can we get standards harmonized. Plus, um, from my perspective, if we have harmonized standards, uh, when we procure equipment, that procurement is much more effective for all of us because we focus industry effort on a single set of standards um, and a larger uh, portfolio of potential markets for them. Thanks.
3: Thanks. Does your responsibility also include security for private charter aviation? And if so, why do the standards appear to be more
2: relaxed? Well, you know, what we focus on is the number of passengers on board an aircraft. You know, you only have a certain amount of resources, uh, and so you need to focus on where you think the greatest risk. Um, but our, our, our responsibility, uh, and not a lot of people are aware of this, but our responsibility uh, extends across through to surface transportation as well. So we have responsibility... Um, for security oversight uh, of the pipeline industry, of the bus industry, mass transit, uh, rail. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's a pretty significant and broad grant of, of security responsibility. But we work primarily with those partners and don't provide the security ourselves. But but, uh, essentially what we do is we, we look at, uh, you know, where are the highest passenger loads, and, and that's how we focus our efforts.
1: My question is in regard to there's been a lot of discussion of segmenting passenger populations. Let's say there's no legal limitation access to more data points at Tide and other sources. How are you going to segment passengers effectively beyond a terrorism database? Social media analysis shows that it isn't effective with the recent attacks in San Bernardino, New York, where there was no overindications of their ties. Without that knowledge, what are we gaining by segmenting more? The only thing we appear to gain is efficiency. Would you say segmentation would be put in place because TSA is too risk-averse
2: right now? No, in fact, uh, you know, I think if you, if you put segmentation in place, um, uh, you know, that introduces a, a bit more risk in, in, in some ways. Um, but it, the premise for me is, uh, you know, as I look at the, at the resources I have to provide security uh, in the aviation sector in particular, how do I apply those resources to the greatest effect? Um, and segmentation may be able to, to provide that to us. However, uh, you raise a good point in that uh, in some of the past attacks, you know, segmentation would not have identified those individuals for additional screening. Uh, and so what we do, and I think every security system that I'm aware of does this, is we have a degree of randomness where even if you are a trusted traveler, uh, you, you stand the likelihood that you're going to go through additional screening because we randomly select um, to be able to address that. Um, the other thing is, is just to keep in mind that, that no security system is ever 100% effective. Uh, we try to get as close to that as we can, um, and, and we try to develop as much information and as much intelligence as we can about how we do that. Um, and, and apply the resources in, in what appears to be uh, the most analytically sound way to do it. But, but certainly that random check uh, does allow us to uh, to have passengers that might otherwise be considered for a little bit less uh, security effort um, to get more at times. If I can just add a, a
3: comment on that, you know, the, the randomness. Uh, on, on the White House Commission, we inserted the issue of randomness deliberately, and, and, and it really had two purposes. One was the clear issue in terms of no one ought to be guaranteed a free pass, that there should, still should be, one, some level of inspection, and even though you're in a less-risk category, you may be randomly selected for mm-hmm. the bolt security treatment. Uh, And the other reason we put that in is so that we wanted to guard against uh, screeners treating people who were selectees as suspects. And by introducing a random component, the people who were then doing the additional security checks had no way of knowing is that a random selectee or one on security grounds. And I mean, I was randomly selected a couple of times myself, And the idea is, okay, you may have a frequent flyer here Mm -hmm. who you probably ought not to be treating as a suspect, although they will understand why they've been randomly selected. The other thing is that there is, because of of, of sorting out passengers in different categories, it does increase efficiency, but efficiency does have a contribution to effectiveness here. And that is, if you look at airports and and, and lines going through security, the pre-checks who are the frequent travelers, are really efficient at breaking down and getting through the system fast and putting themselves together and take less attention. When you're in vacation time and you have the family that maybe has never been on a flight before and somebody's saying, why do I have to take off my shoes? What do you mean I have to take off my necklace or something that's making noise? That takes just to get them through the process, a lot more attention. And so by freeing up uh, the screeners from one line which needs less uh, care, you do get to focus more on some others, and you do get a more effective operation.
0: I had a question about but, yeah. consistencies but
1: taking it in a different direction. Mm-hmm. So um, you talked about how they changed procedures a bit on Thanksgiving, and being mm-hmm. resilient, being dynamic is an element of good security. Um, but I think a lot of time passengers see if TSA does something differently maybe they're not following procedures or they're not doing things in a standard way so I'm curious how you make uh, TSA resilient to criticism when it is unfounded mm-hmm. both at an institutional level when you're dealing with oversight mechanisms mm-hmm. and also on a day-to-day level when you've got officers interacting with the public
2: right. that's a, um, a concern of mine uh, and I've talked about it a lot internally to TSA and and I'll basically pull on my Coast Guard experience. You know, Coast Guard has a, a workforce that uh, is also relatively new to the government and relatively new to the Coast Guard, uh, and yet the Coast Guard has found a way to provide significant authority and flexibility to its frontline workforce so that they can make on-the-spot decisions within guidelines that we have in the Coast Guard to, to make a good decision And in the support of their, their leadership going up. In TSA, it's a little bit of a harder situation because a passenger... Uh, we'll certainly see an inconsistency from one airport to the other or even from one uh, transportation security officer to the other. And, and so for me, the, the, the dilemma is sometimes I, I'm okay with that consistency as long as the officer can articulate why uh, a, a different decision was made. Uh, and so one of the things that we're looking at is, is for our, our supervisors and our leadership personnel at the checkpoints, can we give them a little bit more discretion inside our standard operating procedures to take a passenger, for example, that, that we've, uh, we're doing a um, pat-down on and, uh, or, or checking uh, a number of bottles of liquid through our liquid bottle uh, scanner, and at some point the supervisor looking at that process and saying, okay, we've done four bottles, for example, and, and all have been clear. I've watched this passenger. I've got training in behavior detection. We can uh, curtail that operation and allow that passenger to proceed with very minimal risk. Right now we don't allow that discretion uh, at our checkpoints. And one of the things that I'm looking at is can we provide it, but then knowing full well that, that uh, you, you do then put yourself in the position for a passenger to say or to have an expectation that every time I go through this is going to be what happens. And, and I just don't think that's going to be something that, that we can do uh, overall. So I'm, I'm looking very carefully at how we can provide a little bit more discretion at uh, The front line, the other thing from a security effectiveness perspective is I think if you do procedures that are, you just go through and, and, you, and you have to do a number of steps every time, irregardless of the situation, sometimes you know, human nature is that you start to just go through the motions and do those. Whereas as an individual, if I had a little bit more discretion in, in how I proceeded with that, then I might be a little bit more attentive to what I was doing in each of the steps that I do complete.
0: Just kind of extending uh, what this gentleman said about charter Mm-hmm. Aircraft. You know, I think if you look at the airline business model, the line between charter and commercial is really starting to blur, mm-hmm. and particularly on the regional side where there's a big pilot shortage. You know, I can see a world where transportation becomes a lot more intermodal, mm-hmm. and maybe I'm not connecting from airplane to airplane. I'm connecting from bus to airplane, or I'm connecting mm-hmm. from a charter aircraft to an airplane. So how do you think about kind of extending what we would think of today as a secure or sterile 737 and kind of the environment that exists in what we think of as the airport to other modes of transportation or all these new business models that are trying to solve the pilot shortage issue?
2: Yeah, and, and extend to other modes of transportation is, uh, is something that we, we look at all the time. In fact, when I, when I look at uh, you know, what might be the aviation security, uh, and I'm gonna, I won't even say checkpoint at, the, at this point in time, what, what might aviation security look like in 10 years, for example? It might not be a checkpoint. It might be some other configuration as to how, to how we provide that. But as we look at that, I think we also need to be looking at how might we, if we were to provide security, uh, in other modes of transportation, uh, particularly at a transportation node, if you will? How, how might that model extend to, to other modes of transportation? Just kind of keep that in mind as we, as we push it forward. But key, key to that, too, and, and one of the things that, that I have placed particular emphasis on since I've been the administrator is you know, when, I, when I approach a security issue and I, and I approach my industry partners, whether it's a, a surface transportation operator, an airline, or an airport, uh, the way I want to approach it is, hey, here's the security challenge that we have here's the security outcome that, that I, as the TSA administrator, need to achieve. How do we collectively, as, as partners, get to that security outcome? Because you know, I, I'm not willing to say, because I don't think it's true, is that, that, that TSA knows the right way to do it every single time, uh, or the most efficient way, or the most effective way. And so what I want to be able to do consistently is get the input, before we even put a, a regulation or a rule or a directive in place, get the input of our partners, who actually have a shared interest uh, in safety and security for sure, how, how, do we put, how do we achieve a security outcome that we might look at different ways of achieving it, but it's just as effective, and if it's just as effective but can be done more efficiently by an industry partner, then I think that's a, that's a way we ought to entertain going.
4: Okay. I'm Al Karnasal from UCLA. I have a question about just how vulnerable we are to changes in terrorists' objectives and tactics. Brian mentioned earlier how they focus on airlines, right. and they have a thing about airlines. You mentioned how we try to protect the maximum number of people. Mm-hmm. We've gone from trying to make sure a plane couldn't be hijacked from ransom to trying to make sure a plane couldn't be hijacked to go into a building mm-hmm. to try to protect a plane from being blown up. Mm-hmm. That's very few people. Right. Uh, imagine if the terrorists decided tomorrow and we saw a New York subway train and a Boston T blown up far more people than on any airplane, what do we do then? So how, how do we arrange to make sure that we are not trapped by what terrorists are doing today and how they might do something very different tomorrow?
2: Yeah, and I, th- I think that's, that's a really critical point. And, and one of the things that, that I think is important for us to do in TSA is we need to address today's security issues, but we need to address today's security issues with tomorrow's in mind. Um, and, and as I look forward uh, in, in security over the next five, seven, eight years, uh, what do we anticipate, given what we know now? Uh, what do we anticipate our security requirements are going to be And design systems that will we'll be able to address those? And, you know, uh, a lot of people say, hey, you want to stay one step ahead of your adversary. I would submit that you want to stay multiple steps ahead of your adversary because they, they, can, they can work very quickly to change what they want to do. Uh, and one of the reasons why in my, in my prepared remarks I talked about entrepreneurship is, you know, TSA was founded on the idea that you have a very dynamic threat, whether it's aviation or surface. You need to put an agency in place that can, can respond dynamically to that threat and stay well ahead of it. Um, and so, you know, to me, my question always is, hey, let's address the problem we have now, but, but where's this going and how can we get ahead of it? And another important part of that is, is how can we gather more information so that we have a more, uh, more informed view as to where things are going. I, you, know, you, can, you can be in a position where you just receive a lot of information. I want to be in a position where I ask out a lot of information. And I'll go to, the, to a question that was, was raised earlier with respect to um, partnerships with the owners and operators of transportation systems. In operating their businesses, they have a lot of information as to what's happening within their business model and what's happening within their customer base. To the extent that we can pull the security elements of that and make sure we have a good, robust dialogue from, let's say, an airline and what they're seeing with respect to security based on their business alone and and what TSA might be seeing based on the intelligence information that we garner from the overall U.S. intelligence community. How can we make our intelligence view more informed and more in context with what the businesses are seeing, but importantly looking out into the future?
0: This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org/events.